Amen. That is a tough act to follow. That's a tough one right there. As the young people would say, that was a bop. Where's my young people at? Any, no. Young people, hey, with youth ministries, when I say these words out of context, they just cringe. You're like, this guy is so just really, I'm, I embarrass them constantly. So praise the Lord. Amen for that. Hallelujah to the Lamb. I hope you all are looking forward to the day with every tribe, every tongue, every nation. We get kind of caught up in, in a context of how we worship and how we do things, but it's not very, um, not that we've done anything wrong, but not very international in a sense. I'm looking forward to the day when there's no ethnic barriers, there's no language barriers, that I can be with brothers and sisters in Christ from around the world and worship and I'm assuming one language will all understand each other. And how amazing is that going to be? So much we're, we're kind of confined to how we understand it and how we've done it because it's what we know, it's what we're around. Brothers and sisters, we have more in common with the believer in the Middle East eternally than we do with our unbelieving neighbor next to our house. And so we need to think much, much bigger as we think about missions, as Toby shared this morning, we need to think much, much bigger as we understand the body of Christ. And while we're dependent on one another here, we have a responsibility to the global church as well. And praise the Lord, one day, every knee, every tongue, every tribe, everyone will confess, and in front of the throne, every people group will be represented, amen? And I'm, I'm to be honest, I'm humbled to have even missionaries that are retired from among our congregation, to have Toby that's here, who has devoted his life, Kirsten, their family. We should not take that lightly. And we should be thankful that we get to come alongside and encourage them in that. So I just want to say welcome. My name is Andrew. I am uh, one of the pastors here at Dalton Alliance Church. I think, uh, maybe hopefully I get this right. My new title is uh, Assistant Lead Pastor of Teaching and Discipleship. So I get to hammer out one of those this morning with teaching. I'm looking forward to it. I'm excited to be here. And I just wanted to welcome you in the name of the Lord. If we haven't met, I'd love to meet you. I'll be up front after communion as well. And love to be able to encourage you um, for being here. We have gone through the year of the patriarchs, the year of the prophets, the year of the evangelists. And we are in the year of the apostles. Last week we finished Hebrews. Pastor Brad preached from Legacy Camp. And that was ex uh, exciting and fun. I know he was there with his family and a blessing to him. Today we'll be in 1 Peter. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to 1 Peter. Uh, just some things briefly. It was written by Peter, obviously, um, around 62 to 64 AD. And that will be important as we get into some of the text today. Um, it was written from Rome, which is also an important piece. We think it's written from Rome as uh, he references uh, the city of Babylon, sends their greetings um, they think that's an inference to Rome, and that's in chapter 5, verse 13. It's written, though, to people in Asia Minor, present-day Turkey. Uh, if you think of kind of the Mediterranean area, it is northwest of Israel on the northern side of the Mediterranean Sea. Um, but we're looking at about five different cities that we see in verse 1. We see Pontius, or areas, not just cities, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. These are regions in that present-day Turkey area. One of the interesting parts is Peter, there's no record that Peter ever visited there. There's no record that Peter had ever gone to these regions. 
We know that Paul had traveled as a missionary to some of these regions, but there's no record that Peter did. Um, so that's kind of an interesting piece. And the purpose of the letter is to encourage the believers that God had chosen them and to follow the example of Christ in his sufferings as they go through their sufferings. So you have to understand at that time, we are talking about a people group that were conquered. Rome has conquered pretty much the known world and these people were conquered. They were slaves in a sense that they were there to meet the needs of Rome. They were a conquered people group. And so this is who Peter uh, is writing to in his letter. So let's pray, let's open up and then uh, we'll get into God's word and trust that he uses us this morning. Lord, thank you for your word. Uh, thank you for Peter. Thank you, Lord, that we can read, uh, Lord, his charge to the church there as they, are, as they are living out their faith in a world that's not uh, Judeo-Christian, that's not supportive, Lord, but they're living out a way that reflects the example of Christ. Lord, would we, Lord, follow the example of Christ in our own lives? Lead us today, Lord, to your truth. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. So again, we're in 1 Peter, and we are going to, uh, I'll give a quick overview. We're going to be landing in chapter 2 and, and some verses around it. But to get there, uh, it's important to know the context of the letter. When I, uh, this summer, we've done something with youth called Donuts and Discovery. It's been a lot of fun. Um, for two hours every Wednesday morning, the students come out and they uh, have shown me enough patience to hang out with me as we get into God's Word. I know the whole Dorsey family would come. I appreciate that. And uh, we would get into God's Word and kind of tackle some hard subjects. And uh, one of the things that we started off with is to understand Scripture, you have to understand it in the context of how and where and to who it was written. Peter didn't write this letter to us. We're 2,000 years after this letter was written. But this letter had an author, it had a recipient, and it had a purpose. Um, one of the things I tried to, to demonstrate with the students, if I went to Pastor Carly's house and opened up his mailbox, I haven't done this, it's kind of creepy, but I opened up his mailbox, and he had a letter in there from his family in Haiti. And I opened it up, and I read the letter, and they're talking about what's going on and uh, past memories. It'd be like me reading the letter like, oh, this is written to me. And that would be really weird because I don't know the people, I don't know the context, I don't know any of those things, but it's written to Carly. And for us as Christians, we have to read the Bible, not where we just kind of cherry pick and take a verse and put it in our pocket and apply it to haphazardly to what we're going through. While there is a level that we can do that, it's important to understand what the author wrote to the intended reader. And so, Carly, I promise not to go through your mail. At your house, here I might look in your mail. No, I'm just joking. So... Uh, with that in mind, let's, let's kind of enter into this time looking at the letter of Peter to the people of Asia Minor and see what Peter is trying to articulate. So Peter opens up in the verses 1 through 9, and he encourages the believers that they are chosen by God. That's a big, big deal. God chose them. He has a purpose for them. They're saved by the blood of Christ, and they are recipients of God's inheritance, but all of this is possible because of their faith in Christ. And while testing and temptation will arise, their 
being faithful demonstrates their proof of salvation. And so there's this weird tension. We see that they're chosen by God, but they're also called to be faithful and that their faith is what is a part of this whole equation. And so we see this relationship between the chosenness and the call of God and the faithfulness of man. In verses 10 through uh, second, uh, or the second chapter, verse 3, we see that Peter is talking about how the prophets in the Old Testament, they're talking about the Messiah's future sufferings and his glories and that, that the people of Asia Minor that Peter's writing to, that they're the recipients of all of the prophecy, that they're the recipients of all of the faithfulness of the prophets and of the people that spoke in the Old Testament. <clears throat> I feel like that's a big deal. So many times we feel like, is there more, or, or are we being kept out of something? And Peter's saying, all of the Old Testament is for you. It's for what Christ has done. He's fulfilled it. And while they didn't understand how it would all play out, you are the recipients of the fulfillment. And you get to enjoy what the prophets had spoke about. Mainly, that God's grace has been given to mankind. And because God's grace has been given, then holiness is achievable. Holiness is achievable because God can... can wash us, he can cleanse us, he can make us righteous, and because the blood of Christ is given, they can be holy. In chapter 2, uh, we're getting close to our text, but we're not there yet. In chapter 2, Peter builds upon their salvation in Christ and their holiness when he describes who they are. One of the things you'll hear a lot here, you'll hear it from me, is who you are in Christ is the foundation of your faith. Who you are in Christ is the bedrock as far as what it looks like to be like Christ. Pastor Brad preached a couple weeks ago, if Christ is in me and I am in Christ, the results of that and what's next is eternal. It's eternal because whatever Christ has, I have. And it's not because I've earned it, it's not because I've achieved anything. It's because Christ graciously gives it to me and I can receive it by faith. And what we see in chapter two is this awesome, awesome just descriptions of who they are in Christ. Here are some words we see in chapter two. We see that they're living stones, a spiritual temple, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own possession. This is who they are in Christ, a people set apart for God. Brothers and sisters, if, if for nothing else, if this doesn't resonate, if you, can't, if you don't understand who you are in Christ, everything that we're gonna speak about after this has no power, has no longevity. It's only done in your own strength. And so when we see how God sees us as his people, as his holy nation, as his possession, may we not be short-sighted as far as what the possibilities of that means. So today's message, the title is Follow the Example of Christ. I don't know if you've noticed, but there's something different about the word example. And we'll get to that here in a second. Before we start, though, um, that's the title, Is That Your Desire? And so obviously you're here, so that's a good start. But 
follow the example of Christ. Do you understand the vastness of what that encompasses? We're good with his freedom over sin. We like that example. We're good with his authority over the dominions of darkness, over sickness, over the curse. We like that part. But do we like the part of the example of Christ that cost him his own body? Are we willing today as, as we are being charged? So my question is, is your desire to follow the example of Christ in all of its totality? Not just in the things that are convenient, but in all of it. So let's start with, uh, we're in 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to be in verses 21 through 25. And then we're going to get into a deeper look into some of the text. So it says this in verse 21. For God called you to do good, even if it means suffering. Just as Christ suffered for you, he is your example, and you must follow in his steps. He, being Jesus, never sinned, nor deceived anyone. He did not retaliate when he was insulted, nor threaten revenge when he suffered. He left his case in the hands of God, who always judges fairly. He personally carried our sins in his body on the cross so that we can be dead to sin and live for what is right. By his wounds, you are healed. Once you were like sheep who wandered away, but now you have turned to your shepherd, the guardian of your souls. That's our Jesus. That's his work. We're saved by the body of Christ carrying our sins. But what does he say in verse 21? For God called you to do what is good, even if it means suffering. And just as Christ suffered for you, he is your example, and you must follow in his steps. As I was studying and going through Peter, there's really a lot of words in Peter that are very unique to the New Testament. He uses many words that are not used in other letters and um, so in the study, you have to understand when you're trying, when you're teaching, you're trying to take a word. I don't speak Greek. I can, I study it and I try to know as much as I can about the nuances, but I don't speak it. It's not my natural tongue. And so again, because it's not written to me, I have to do my best to understand what Peter's trying to hit on. And so he uses a very unique word when he uses the word example in verse 21. And it's the word hupogramos. And hupo is a prefix in the Greek language which means to put yourself under. It's a placement. When you see the word submit or submiss submission, and we're gonna talk about that here in a second, it's talking, it's, it uses the word hupo, to put under. But then the second word is gramos. And if we have any educators or anyone who can write well, gramos means to write. It's an underwriting. And so when it's the only time it's used in Scripture, you have to many times use extra biblical texts to understand how it's used. What does it mean in that day and age? And so while hupogramos is used one time in the New Testament, it was a word used in that time and that culture. And it really is fascinating. And the, one of the ways it's used is when they would teach someone the alphabet. And I remember when I was... I was little at one point, I promise. When I was younger and little, and I was in grade school, you would start writing your letters, right? And they would have 
the dots of the letters and you would just follow the trace marks so that you could complete the letter. When things got really complicated is when you got to second and third grade and cursive was there. You young people don't know anything about cursive. They don't teach it to you anymore. But the struggle was real for us old timers learning how to do cursive and how to write in it. I wrote a letter a couple weeks ago and, uh, oh, thank you. That was very kind of you. Am I already out of breath? Cody makes fun of me because we'll replay my messages and they say I sound like Darth Vader up here, like I'm breathing so heavy. <laughs> Complete deviation. We know when you're in, at church when someone walks down the hall, everyone has their own sound. And my daughter's like, Dad, when you walk, we just hear you breathe. And it's really disturbing. <laughs> and so, thanks, Audrey. All right. <laughs> I was going to say I wrote a letter a couple of months ago and I had to do cursive. And I'm like, I haven't done this in decades. Does anyone still use cursive in here? Y'all, I, you all should be commended. That's very good of you. Um, but this word, hupogramos, is like following the lines. It's following the perfect order of the dots to make sure that it's completed correctly. The other way it's used is for art. A teacher would take, a, 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 they would kind of create an outline of what needed to be painted and they would create the outline, and hupogramos would be where they would take it, and they would give it to the student so that they could complete the rest, that the teacher had given them the framework of which to do their art in, and the rest of it was completed by the student. And so we have this example. We have this framework. We have these dots of which to trace and reflect the example of Christ. And let's see what that looks like, verses 22 through 24. He never sinned, nor deceived anyone. He did not retaliate when he was insulted, nor threaten revenge when he suffered. He left his case in the hands of God, who always judges fairly. He personally carried our sin in his body on the cross, so that we can be dead to sin and live for what is right. By his wounds, you are healed. Peter pointed to the sacrifice of Jesus as the example to follow for those called by God. And we who are in Christ, we must look to the sacrificial work of Jesus as our example to follow. If you read the text, it sounds very similar to something in the Old Testament. I don't know if you guys have pieced it together, but so much of what Peter is writing sounds so much like Isaiah 53 and Isaiah's prediction of the suffering servant. Terminology of a man of sorrows that he was despised, not cared for, that uh, it was our weaknesses that he carried. He did not die for his own sin, but he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so that we could be healed. And then in verses 10 and 11, it was God's good plan to crush him, to cause him grief. Yet when his life is made an offering for sin, he will have many descendants. He will enjoy a long life and the Lord's good plan will prosper in his hands. When he sees all that is accomplished by his anguish, he will be satisfied. And because of his experience, my righteous servant will make it possible for many to be counted righteous for he will bear all their sins. Peter is taking the imagery of Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 was not a prediction for all people. It was a prediction for one, the servant, Jesus. 
Yet Peter is applying the same truths that Jesus exemplified in his suffering and says, you go and do the same. The power and life-changing work of Jesus was in and through his unjust sacrifice. And the power and life-changing work of the church will be in and through our Christ-like sacrifice. If you want to change the world, sacrifice yourself. It's not going to be done through tyranny. It's not going to be done through influence. It's going to be done through servanthood. It's going to be done through brokenness. It's going to be done through the example of Christ. But understand this, godly sacrifice is never bred from fear. There's so many times in our world that we get afraid of what's going on around us, asking God to change. That is fear. God does not respond, nor exemplify, nor champion fear. It is not a characteristic of our God. It is not an emotion of Jesus. And yet so much we operate in fear. Godly sacrifice is generated in God's love and by the power of his example. In the Old Testament, Israel was afraid of God. When they got to the mountain at Sinai, I talk about it a lot. When they got to Sinai, God was speaking from the mountain and they were terrified of his voice. You know who they weren't afraid of at that time? They weren't afraid of Egypt. They weren't afraid of the people in the promised land. They weren't afraid of anything or anyone except for God. Hebrews 12 tells us that because of the blood of Christ, we don't have to be afraid of the voice. That because of what Jesus has done, we don't have to feel the emotion that Israel did. That we can go up the mountain and be with God. God is not afraid. And so as we look at the example of Christ, Peter gives us four different scenarios of how sacrificial life should be exemplified. And the first one starts in verse 13. The first one starts in verse 13 and it's towards human authority. In verse 13, it says this. For the Lord's sake, submit to all human authority, whether the king as head of state or the officials he has appointed. For the king has sent them to punish those who do wrong and to honor those who do right. It is God's will that your honorable lives should silence those ignorant people who make foolish accusations against you. For you are free, yet you are God's slaves. So don't use your freedom as an excuse to do evil. Respect everyone and love the family of believers. Fear God and respect the king. Earlier, there's a part where he says, you have no identity. In chapter two, when he's talking about who they are, you once were a people with no identity, but now you're the people of God. Understand, these people had no hope. They're conquered. They're not gonna rise up against the Romans and take over. They're slaves. They have no influence. They have no voice. And while they could hem and haul and get frustrated and upset about what's going on around them, he says, don't forget who you are. You're my people. And because you're my people, you can submit to the authorities around you. Yes, it might not be fun. Yes, it might not feel good. 
but you're the people of God. Peter urged the believers to submit to the governmental authorities and to live honorably. And we, the church, we need to live in submission to the governmental authority, authorities in our lives and honor them. I know this might not create a comfortable feeling in your stomach. We live in a day that's very polarized about opinions, about different things. But let me remind you of a couple things. There's things I hear at church and from believers, and let me, let me just speak into it. One of the things I hear is that we need a Christian leader or a president. Brothers and sisters, we already have one. His name is Jesus. And so if you're waiting for a Christian to fix things in office, get used to disappointment. And maybe have a level of repentance because you're not really trusting that Jesus is king. We need freedoms. This is another thing I hear. We need freedoms to be the church or to be Christian. The only freedom that God knew we needed, Christ has already taken care of. If we needed more freedoms to be the church or to be Christian, he would have done it. Yet we fight so hard for a certain version. And we look at churches like what they're going through, and it's almost mockery. All they have is Jesus. Another thing I hear, especially with the students, aren't you scared of godless ideologies forced upon us by governmental authorities? There's all sorts of terms for this nowadays. Can I ask a better question? Is Jesus scared of these ideologies? If Jesus is not intimidated or scared or caught off guard by them, why am I? Why are we? Why do we spend so much time like they're going to corrupt the world? The world's already corrupted. Where sin abounds, grace superabounds. The word is eternal. The truth of God is eternal. And so we don't have to be afraid of indoctrination if we stand on God's word. What are you going to do to it? You can't pull and take away God's word. It's eternal. Now, if you don't know it, that's on you. Friends, we have to refrain from thinking like people of this world. We can't live in fear. We are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, God's own possession. We are image bearers. We are eternal with the Son. I have another question to ask, and I'm already short on time, but Peter dies a couple years later. Do you know how he dies? From Nero. Do you know what takes place? There's this massive fire. Nero makes Christians the scapegoat, and there's this massive persecution. If Peter knew what was going to happen, and Peter knew that he was going to be martyred, 
by the government and by the authorities, do you think he would have changed the tone of his letter? Do you think he would have switched it up and said, guys, I got this one wrong, chill out. Like, we need, to, we need, a, we need a different strategy. We need to do something different because this is not, this isn't gonna work. No, do you know why? Because Jesus knew what was coming and he still went to the cross. And since he went to the cross, even though he knew what was coming, we need to follow his example. Being a Christian, you might have to give up your life. But if you've already died in the first place, why does a, why does a physical death mean anything? Do we, guys, I, we have so much power in Christ. Let us not dilute it for the sake of identifying with something else that we think has power as well. Jesus is the only eternal source of power. The second example he uses is slaves. Now realize again, the context here is very different than what we're accustomed to. Slavery back then was a conquered people. And he says this, you who are slaves must submit to your masters with all respect. Do what they tell you, not only if they are kind and reasonable, but even if they are cruel. For God is pleased when conscience of his will, you patiently endure unjust treatment. Of course, you get no credit for being patient if you are beaten for doing wrong. But if you suffer for doing good and endure it patiently, God is pleased with you. The word slaves there is not the word doulos, which is really the typical word in the New Testament for slave. It's the word okatis. And okatis is a word that describes like a domesticated house slave. We're not talking about overarching slavery. We're talking about someone who is working for a master. In today's age, the closest similarity we have in our context would be work, employment, working for someone above you. Peter wanted slaves to submit to their master even if they were treated poorly. And as believers, we must be an example in how we work, how we submit to our bosses, and how we deal with conflict. Simple things like being on time, not partaking in gossip, working for the success of the team. These are ways that show and reflect Christ. Putting ourselves under the authority of our bosses. The next way uh, that is used is in marriage. If you go to chapter three, we just got done with the verses where Christ's sacrifice was articulated, and then we get to verse three, and the first thing that said is, in the same way. In the same way. Follow the example of Christ. Let's see what Peter says here. You wives must accept the authority of your husbands. Then, even if someone refuses to obey the good news, your godly lives will speak to them without any words. They will be won over by observing your pure and reverent lives. Don't be concerned about the outward beauty of fancy hairstyles, expensive jewelry, or beautiful clothes. You should clothe yourselves instead with the beauty that comes from within. The unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. This is so precious to God. This is how the holy women of old made themselves beautiful. They put their trust in God and accepted the authority of their husbands. For instance, Sarah obeyed her husband Abraham and called him her master. You and her daughters, you are her daughters, forgive me, when you do what is right without fear of what your husbands might do. Women in that culture, much like slaves, were considered property. And they were very limited in what they could do. They could very limited on the voice that they had. They were very suppressed. And while Peter's not condoning slavery or the suppression of women, 
He is saying in spite of things that don't reflect the nature of God, that there is an example in Christ to portray. Because of limitations for women, many of them, women would adorn themselves in a way that expressed herself through what she wore. Her voice was through her look. And Peter was urging women to be more concerned about their inward beauty. I appreciate my mother-in-law, Sharon. She taught my wife, um, and, and Wendy quotes it often to Audrey and to Sophie from Proverbs 31, verse 30. Beauty is fleeting and charm is deception, deceptive, but a woman who fears the Lord should be praised. I would say this, though. May we never be guilty of affirming a society that places a woman's value on how they adorn themselves. A person's value lies in being made in the image of God. Men, things like pornography, the sexualization of women, things like treating your spouse as a teammate, that if they would do their part and just take care of their things, that is not the nature of God. Peter encourages the women to understand the preciousness and power of a gentle and quiet spirit. And that in spite of how a husband treats them, that their submission should be stemmed from a hope in God. And so sisters, I would encourage you in your marriage, may your hope in Christ be the foundation of a gentle and quiet spirit, how you submit God in a godly way towards your husband. But may we not treat our wives or women in a way that would even reflect a sniff of possession. They are image bearers. And God created them for a special purpose. And while we have different roles, we have equal value in Christ. Husbands, in verse 7, in the same way, your husband should give honor to your wives. Treat your wife with understanding as you live together. She may be the weaker, uh, she may be weaker than you are, but she is uh, your equal um, partner in God's gift of new life. Treat her as you should, so your prayers will not be hindered. Peter is encouraging the believing men to know their wives. That word understanding is the word gnosis, knowledge. Know your spouse. And knowing your spouse doesn't mean knowing her weaknesses and just being frustrated by them. It's not knowing her insecurities and, you, and, and manipulating them. Knowing your wife is to come alongside and honoring her and in supporting her in spite of what deficiencies there might be. Knowing your wife is being one with your wife. It's allowing your wife to honor God. It's allowing your wife to be a Proverbs 31 woman who is powerful, who is able to take care of her family and do real estate and, and have an have influence in her family, but it's done because the husband is honoring. Men, we need to honor our wives. We need to support our wives. As Brad said, we get so intimidated so often. God gave glory to the Son. Jesus wants to give glory to the church. 
Husbands, may we glorify and honor our wives. In closing, uh, we're going to the table, and what a, what a perfect segue for this message. We get to follow the example of Christ as we, as we get to honor him by partaking in a meal with him. And the final verses we have is verses 8 and 9. It says, finally, again, he's summing this all up. He talked about our relationships with the world, with, with work, in marriage. And then he says, finally, all of you should be of one mind, harmonious, sympathize with each other, love each other as brothers and sisters, be tenderhearted and keep a humble attitude. Don't repay evil for evil. Don't retaliate with insults when people insult you. Instead, pay them back with a blessing. This is what God has called you to, and he will grant you his blessing. May we, the church, never be divisive. May we never be tired of one another. May we never be spiteful, slanderous, gossip, calloused, guarded, haughty, proud, superior. May we reflect the person and the ministry of Christ. May we humbly come before each other as Jesus broke himself saying, I did not come to be served but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. Let's go to his table with that in mind.